Hello and welcome to St Mungo's Podcast. This is episode 39 and this is part two of our obstetric emergency series with Marcus McMillan. So let's just jump right in. Okay, so we get called to another patient. Uh, This is a young lady, 25. It's her first pregnancy. She's quite late on in pregnancy. She's nearly at her due date. She doesn't feel great. She's got some headaches, blurred vision, and we notice that her blood pressure is pretty high, 180 over 120. How would you approach this patient? So first thing to say is that that blood pressure is an obstetric emergency. So this is someone who's obviously unwell, and my first thought would be preeclampsia. That's the most likely thing by far. So you've got three kind of main things to think about with preeclampsia. The blood pressure, the risk of a seizure if it develops into eclampsia, and the other one that people often don't quite realise is fluid balance. Because you'll know with preeclampsia that people get quite edematous, they get puffy, and that happens everywhere, including in their lungs. So the pulmonary edema was a major cause of morbidity and mortality until we recognise this. And we have guidelines now about monitoring fluid input, fluid output, and restricting fluid input. So first step in that person is, is this preeclampsia and controlling their blood pressure? So catheterize, get the catheter in, do a urinalysis, look for proteinuria. If you've got PCR facilities or if you've got an electronic strip reader for your urine sticks, that's a useful thing to do. Blood pressure control is the number one thing. So a blood pressure over 150 is bad. A blood pressure over 160 is really bad. The worry we have is a risk of intracranial hemorrhage. So you rupture something in your brain, you bleed into your brain, and uh, you don't need to be a doctor to know that doesn't sound good. We're going to use labetalol as our first line for most people, and it's usually fairly effective. You can give that orally. Starting dose would be 200 milligrams. That'd be fairly reasonable. If you can't give it orally, then you can think about IV. We would use 50 milligrams IV as our bolus dose to begin with and see what that does. Next step after that, we use nifedipine quite a lot. And these are all quite old-fashioned drugs, but that's because we know that they're safe to use. So nifedipine 20, we always use the modified release, uh, just because that's what we're used to doing. Other places might not use that, and that's reasonable. If nifedipine's not working, then we'd think about IV hydralazine. But for someone like that with blood pressure that high, you need to get that under control. There is a caveat to that, which if you bring the blood pressure crashing down, that can cause hypoperfusion in the uterus and affect the fetus. So we're actually aiming for a systolic of around about 140. We're not trying to bring it down too far. And we kind of titrate our dose against that. We have our own setup for doing a lipitolol infusion afterwards, and we will sort of titrate our dose against their blood pressure, increasing or decreasing it to get it under control. So number one stage for that is blood pressure control. At the same time, you'd be thinking she's at risk of a seizure and if she's got a headache and if she's got other symptoms like blurred vision, as you mentioned, she's someone who's probably high risk of having a seizure. So with blood pressure that high, I would probably think about just starting someone in magnesium. So it's a four gram loading dose as a bolus. We give that IV and it makes people feel absolutely terrible. So when we do that in labor ward, we'll have a midwife whose entire job will be mopping the brow, fanning them because it makes them feel really hot, really sick and really unwell. The good news is once the bolus is finished the feeling goes away fairly quickly after that we'll then start them on an infusion usually about one gram an hour and we'll run that for at least 24 hours after we start it so we've got our blood pressure under control 
we've thought about our seizure prophylaxis, our last step is going to be fluid restriction. So that's pretty straightforward. We're going to give one mil per kilo per hour up to a maximum of 85 mils. Now you've got your labetalol running and you've got your magnesium sulfate running, then you have to take those off the total. And we would just use Hartman as a fluid. And we're going to make sure the fluid output is good, check, use and ease, because obviously if someone's got significant renal dysfunction, which you can have, it's very easy to accidentally overload them even with a small amount of fluid going in. Okay, so we'll obviously do all our bloods, etc. Now, we've come across this HELP syndrome. Does that change anything? Not particularly, no. So you mentioned blood tests there. You want your full blood count. You want your use and ease. You want your liver function. HELP syndrome is hemolysis, elevated liver uh, enzymes, and low platelets. We don't really know why it happens. We know that it does. And you can have individual parts of that. Like you can just have the low platelets. You can just have the elevated liver enzymes. The fact is that preeclampsia will only be getting better once the baby and placenta are delivered and everything we do up until that point and even afterwards is just supportive. We're just basically keeping things going until it goes away by itself. Can the platelets ever be too low? Would you ever give platelets at any stage? So if the platelets are getting that low there that you're worried, especially if you're going to be doing a deliver either delivery either operative or vaginally, then yeah, you would. If they're getting under 50, then we've already spoken about PPH, and obviously if you're doing a cesarean section, that's got risk. The other thing to bear in mind with preeclampsia that is that severe is that their coagulation may be affected as well. So you can get abnormal clottings. You might not just need platelets, you might need other clotting factors too. Now this is... Obviously a patient who's getting admitted, but let's go with the other extreme end of, of preeclampsia. When should we start to be suspicious of it? Or is there anything that can guide when someone should be admitted? Um, anything you want to say about that? So if you've got someone who's pregnant in their past 24 weeks, because most preeclamptics will be past 24 weeks, if they've got, even with normal blood pressure, if you have a plus of proteinuria, I'm maybe a little bit suspicious about preeclampsia. If you've got two pluses, I'm very suspicious indeed. And if you have three pluses of proteinuria and dipstick, that's someone who I would basically be admitting to the hospital until I can prove that they do not have preeclampsia. Okay, so this lady is is on a pathway to delivery. Um, we know that. But how do you make decisions around delivery? Like how preeclamptic do they need to be or sick do they need to be? And at what gestation does does that influence your decisions? So boiling obstetrics down to its bare minimum it is essentially one intervention, which is delivery. And I apologize to all the clever fetal medicine doctors who do other things, but that, that's basically it. We have to decide, is the mum unwell enough to be delivered or is baby unwell enough to be delivered? And what we're trying to do is strike a balance between, yes, this baby probably is delivered either in fetal or maternal interests, versus the risks of prematurity. So someone who is unwell at 36 weeks, well, that's easy because the neonatal outcomes there are very, very good. So we're going to deliver. Someone who's unwell at 24 weeks, that's a bit more complicated because the neonatal outcomes there are not so good. So we might try and push that pregnancy a bit further and accept a bit more compromise of mum or potentially baby, depending on the situation. Okay, so we've stabilised that patient. We get called a resus. There's a, a lady who's heavily pregnant. This is actually a case that I had. A lady who's heavily pregnant. She was from Africa. I'd, I think she'd maybe not been in the system in the UK. Um, so no one really knew her status. No one had any records. Uh, and she was fitting. Uh, how do you approach that patient? So first thing to say about eclamptic seizures is it's the same as managing any seizure. It's going to be airway, thinking of your IV access, just thinking about general well-being. 
most eclamptic seizures are self-limiting. So you won't have someone who just keeps on seizing. You will usually stop. And certainly as an obstetrician, the majority of seizures that I've been called to, I've got there either at the very end or after it's finished. So it will usually come to an end. You're going to want to think about all the stuff we spoke about already, your IV access, your magnesium, controlling the blood pressure, fluid restriction, catheters. But ultimately it's going to be delivery is the only thing that's going to bring this under control. Eclampsia and preeclampsia never get better, they only ever progress. So even if someone's blood pressure is controlled with labetalol, until you deliver them, that risk of seizure continues. And actually it's worth noting that the commonest time to have a seizure is after the baby is delivered. So people will sometimes deliver the baby and think, ah, she's sorted and relax a little bit, but we know that that's a mistake. You have to watch that person closely because they've just gone into the highest risk time for having a seizure. As I said, this was a case that I was involved in, but we, we didn't know whether... With no records on this lady, we didn't know whether she was just an epileptic um, or whether this could be an eclampsia. What's the simple thing you can do to kind of decide? I think, you know, getting a urine sample off, and that may require being catheterized. And if you've got significant proteinuria in a lady who's obviously pregnant and having a seizure, your first thought really should probably be eclampsia rather than anything else. And what about anti-seizure medicine? So now we're on a different pathway. So we've done that. There's proteinuria. We've decided this is eclampsia. It's a little bit different, isn't it? How, how would you treat the seizures? So we would use magnesium sulfate as our first-line treatment, and we're, we mentioned the loading dose and the infusion. You can use other medications to treat it. So if magnesium isn't sufficient, then I wouldn't say stop it or keep that going, but you, we use diazomol as our second line. You can think about things like phenytoin, because if someone's having a seizure that's going on long enough to compromise their airway and oxygenation, that'll be compromising the fetus as well. So really getting the seizure under control becomes your priority rather than anything else. And would I be right in saying that we, we've mentioned some of the basics, which are great to do, but but expediently getting to theatre, is that the key in situations like this? Yeah, delivery is going to be your priority in that situation. So if you have someone in the department who's had an eclamptic seizure, you really want to get them somewhere that they can be delivered in one way or another. It doesn't have to be a section, it quite often will be. If someone's Paris, they may actually already be in labour when they have their seizure. But the key feature, yeah, is getting them somewhere to be delivered. Okay, anything else you'd like to add about eclampsia? It's just, I think it's important to bear in mind that eclampsia can happen at any stage in pregnancy and seizures can happen antepartum, intrapartum and most commonly actually postpartum. Although delivering the baby and the placenta is the cure for preeclampsia, that person is still at risk of a seizure postnatally and that's actually the commonest time to have a seizure is postnatally. And how far beyond delivery can it happen? So that's a really good question. So uh, we've seen people come back with seizures a week postnatally so up to sort of 10 14 days postnatally and we're still kind of going well, what is this is it is it eclampsia your first five days are the highest risk time so we've had someone who's severely preeclamptic we'd be watching them pretty closely for at least five days after they deliver beyond that if their blood pressure is normal and they're feeling well they're probably okay but you can't ever really rule it out and will, will people who have seizures five days or a week afterwards, will they still have high blood pressure and high protein? So not necessarily. You can have an eclamptic seizure with a normal blood pressure, but you'd still expect to find the protein there. Okay, so our next patient is a 30-week pregnant lady who comes in and she's bleeding quite heavily. So she's using sanitary pads, but she's bleeding through them and having to change them quite regularly. 
How would you generally approach a patient like this? So some of the antepartum hemorrhage, uh, it all boils down to these same principles. Is mum compromised? Is baby compromised? If either is yes, then you're going to deliver. If someone is bleeding heavily, it's not stopping, then delivery is going to be what you're looking for. From someone who's coming to A&E, what we would be looking for is to have IV access, blood's done, all that sort of stuff ready. Basic resuscitation measures underway. The main causes of antepartum hemorrhage, if it's significant, is probably either going to be an abruption where the placenta started to separate from the uterus before the baby has delivered. That can be revealed or concealed. So some people will come in with bleeding and they're generally pretty sore. They might come in just shocked and really sore with no obvious cause because they won't see any bleeding, but their uterus will be really firm. They'll be really tender to touch and that'll be a bit of a giveaway. The other cause would be a placenta previa, where the placenta covers the cervix, and that can cause classically painless bleeding, but not necessarily always the case. Uh, both are managed the same way. It's resuscitation, it's thinking about delivery, replacing blood and blood products. And getting help. Getting help, yeah. If you're in, if you're in A&E, you probably want to call an obstetrician or a midwife to come and help you. Anything we need to think about in terms of blood products? Any, any Anything differ specifically for pregnant ladies? Not particularly. You're going to treat them broadly the same. Yeah, If they need O negative, give them O negative. If you haven't got time to wait for a cross match and you need group specific, get group specific. Make sure the lab know that this person that they're getting blood for is pregnant because they will do slightly different things. They'll look for things like kale antigens. Kale antibodies, once you're exposed, are a big problem in a future pregnancy, causing hemolysis and death in babies. Uh, Anti-D is something important to be aware of. If mum's rhesus negative and she's had a sensitizing event, a bleed of some kind, you'll need to give that. But that can be given up to 72 hours after the event. So in an A&E setting, it's not that relevant. Don't need to worry too much. And obviously tranexamic acid as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we used to worry about that, but we think now it's a fairly safe and sensible thing to do. So don't be shy. Absolutely give that. Now, th- this is probably a wee bit of a silly question, but I-, I know there's not a lot we can do about baby, but it, do we need to think about baby or is it just focusing on mum? Not just in this situation, but nearly in all kind of situations. I think if you're dealing with any pregnant person, fetal monitoring is lovely to have, but if you don't have it, then that's not a huge problem. And there's really only a point in doing it if you've got an intervention. So if you can't act on that monitoring and deliver baby What's the point in doing it? The other thing to bear in mind is the best way to get a well baby is to have a well mum. So really in the A&E setting, if you've got a compromised mum, concentrate on her. Don't worry about baby. Try and sort her out. And we would always prioritise mum over baby in any emergency situation ourselves. Okay, so we get called into triage. We've a lady who's 30 weeks pregnant and she's developed a, a chest pain today and feels a little bit breathless. This is probably opening up a can of worms, but it's important that we kind of tease out all the different possibilities. What what kind of goes through your mind when you approach a patient like this? So as obstetricians, we're usually fixed on the idea of a pulmonary embolism. That's number one, chest pain. Oh my goodness, it must be that. Um, but we're quite bad at remembering the cardiac causes. And cardiac causes are actually the number one cause of death for pregnant women in the UK. That's the thing that's most likely to kill you. A you need to think about your ECG, you need to think about having a listen to the heart, having a listen to the chest, and that's something that we are quite bad at. And our confidential inquiries do criticise us about not remembering to think about things like an echo, like a chest x-ray to assess the heart. 
And what are the kind of cardiac conditions that, that can kind of occur? So we divide it into congenital cardiac disease and acquired cardiac disease. And it used to be the case that congenital cardiac disease was the commonest cause of maternal death overall. But now it has recently become acquired cardiac disease. So it's things like ischemic heart disease, things like a peripartum cardiomyopathy, people presenting with symptoms of heart failure, which of course would be feeling short of breath, a bit of chest tightness, which can be normal in pregnancy. So that's why it tends to get missed so much. Okay, so we've, we kind of feel it's less likely to be a kind of cardiac cause. What, what are some of the other things we need to keep in mind? So you can be pregnant and be short of breath, and that can be completely normal. So you'll do various things will happen that will make you more short of breath. As the fetus gets bigger, the diaphragm gets splinted. It's harder and harder to draw breath. Your PO2 levels are going to need to be maintained for you and the fetus, so you're going to have to perfuse that other person in there. You also sort of reset your, your normal biochemistry. You run yourself slightly more alkalotic when you're pregnant. You blow off your CO2, and that lets the fetus dump its CO2 into the maternal circulation, and that gives you a kind of subjective feeling of being short of breath the whole time. And those things will all get worse as the pregnancy progresses. So most people will find that as they get more pregnant, they become more short of breath. So if someone says, I've been feeling more short of breath for the last two or three weeks, been getting gradually worse, that's much less concerning than someone who's got a sudden onset of symptoms. Now, in this particular case, there's been a bit of an acute deterioration. Um, so we've kind of excluded the cardiac and we don't think it's maybe a physiological thing. What, what are other things to think about? So you'd be thinking about anything that could happen that if you weren't pregnant, you can get chest infections, you can have exacerbations of your asthma, anything at all that would be a routine thing to see in A&E causing chest pain and shortness of breath. Now, one of the kind of, I don't feel even after all these years of doing a and &E, I've got a very clear grasp of PE in pregnancy and I know we maybe give it as you say maybe a little bit too much emphasis but just say in this case that we have excluded the other things there is just a sudden chest pain there's been a drop in her saturation she feels quite unwell um, when do we think of it and how would we go about diagnosing it investigating it and ultimately treating it how would you approach that? I don't think you. I don't think you do give it a necessary sort of priority in in a pregnant person because that is the num pulmonary embolism is the number one cause of death from direct causes of pregnancy. So that means something that is directly related to pregnancy that you wouldn't get outside of it. You're about four to five times more likely to have a clot when you're pregnant than not pregnant. You're about twenty times more likely to have a clot when you're postpartum actually compared to being uh, non-pregnant. So if you see someone with sudden onset of short of breath, that should absolutely be in the mix for a potential diagnosis. You're going to do your standard workup, your uh, blood, your gases, your OBS, and then we're going to think about, do we need to be imaging this person in some way? Well, just thinking about the blood test, firstly, I've heard about trimester-adjusted D-dimers. Do we go there? What What is your kind of advice on D-dimer in pregnancy? It's not something that we use at all. I wouldn't say even routinely, we just don't use it. The reason being, as your pregnancy progresses, your D-dimer levels are going to increase. By the time you get towards sort of second and third trimester, the chance of having a normal D-dimer is essentially zero. Uh, it would only really be useful as a negative test to exclude something. But the certainly the studies I've looked at, that just doesn't happen. You just don't get a negative D-dimer in late pregnancy. Do you 
tend to place much emphasis on risk stratification tools, or is it more a gestalt with some kind of observations and the history? What, what, what works for you in terms of your risk stratification? So we use risk stratification to tell you your risk of having a pulmonary embolism. So we'll look at things like smoking, BMI, family history, parity and various other risk factors we've got. But if someone is suspected of having a, a pulmonary embolism, we don't have a tool to sort of stratify them based on their symptoms. We just have a high level of suspicion. The problem with that is it means we investigate a lot of people for very few diagnoses and only about 2 to 5% of people who are suspected of having a pulmonary embolism will actually end up being diagnosed with one. Your absolute risk of having a pulmonary embolism, although it's higher relatively in pregnancy, your absolute risk is still only about 1 in 1,000, slightly less than that. So the risk is still fairly small overall. Okay, so we've got a good suspicion and... We thinking this needs to be investigated radiologically. You know, we always have such a thing about giving radiation to a pregnant lady. Oh my goodness! And I keep hearing from lots and lots of people that we sh- we don't need to be as worried as we are. But anyway, in th- in this case, first let, let's first of what what would be what would you do first? What what would be your your radiological investigations of choice? So, in someone who you're suspecting with a, a PE, then chest X-ray straight off the back because you're going to need that to get your VQ scan in most places. And I wouldn't have any worries about doing that whatsoever. Next step would be the VQ scan, and a lot of places will only do the perfusion part; they won't do the ventilation part, and that's completely reasonable. Uh, and following from that, depending on what that shows, we may then escalate to a CTPA. My thoughts on that are, you know, doing these tests isn't an issue. Modern machines, reasonable shielding, the baby's not going to come to any harm realistically whatsoever from that. But don't do it just for the sake of doing it. If someone's got barn door chest infection symptoms and, you know, they've got their cough, they've got crackles, they feel unwell, what's the chest actually going to add? You know, so don't, don't do things unnecessarily, but equally, if you think the test needs done, do the test. Yeah. And if you felt if this lady wasn't pregnant and you were in this situation and you would have done it, yeah. it's safe to do I so in this case. that's a good rule. You kind of go, what would I do if this person wasn't pregnant? Do that. Anything you want to say about the radiology? Um, what's your thoughts on dosing and risk to, to, to fetus? So the risk, uh, there's a, an excellent uh, review article about this and the short version is basically you can pretty much do just about anything you want if you really have to. We've organised CT scans for people who are pregnant of their abdomen looking for potential uh, cancers. Uh, we can do MRI scans almost with impunity. We don't worry too much about them anymore at all realistically the dose of radiation you need to have a significant detrimental effect of fetus is fairly huge and even a ct of a pelvis which is one of the highest doses we've got comes well under that threshold by a factor of about 10. okay so say someone's listening they're in a remoter community maybe they don't have access to radiological investigations but their their um suspicion is high what about treatments anything you want to say about how, how we treat these patients so we, I mean, we ourselves, even though we're in a big hospital and we're right next to our A&E, we'll quite often be waiting 24, 40 hours to get a, a test done. There's no harm at all in just starting low molecular weight heparin at a treatment dose. So we sort of use noxparin one milligram per kilogram twice a day or one and a half milligram per kilograms once a day. It doesn't cross the placenta. We use it for loads of stuff in pregnancy. Very safe drug. Uh, so if you're worried about someone, just start them on treatment dose, low molecular weight heparin, and we can investigate them at our leisure. Do you mind if I take you back a little bit? I'd like to go back to the cardiac 
stuff because I know that is a big a big thing that maybe is a wee bit underappreciated. Tell me a wee bit more about that. What 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 should we be doing that maybe we're not doing as well for these types of patients? So our, our reports, our confidential inquiries, we look at maternal deaths, we'll sort of look at all these things and what we know is an area where we quite often don't do well is in investigating cardiac causes. So if someone is feeling short of breath, if they've got orthopnea, if they've got any sort of cardiac symptom, get a cardiologist involved, get an echo, get someone who knows what they're doing. Because obstetricians, we don't know what we're doing. We know who to call, but we can't necessarily fix it. So it might be the case that if the cardiologist is there with a little portable echo and they can do it, great. Get them along to have a little peep. So many, many thanks again to Marcus McMillan, and you'll be hearing more from him in the next and final episode. I think my main take-home points today are number one, for preeclampsia, there are really three treatment arms. You've got to treat the blood pressure, particularly if it's above 160 systolic, and labetalol is a good first choice. You want to reduce the risk of seizures with magnesium, and you want to fluid restrict to one mil per kilogram per hour. Number two, eclampsia. These seizures are typically self-limiting, but they will recur and not get better until baby is delivered, and they are commonest after delivery up to two weeks. Number three, for antepartum hemorrhage. Remember, these can be concealed, but the abdomen will often be tense and sore. But do the basics well. ABC, large bore cannula, tranexamic acid, blood and blood products, and delivery if mum or baby are unwell. And finally, number four, chest pain in pregnancy. Don't forget the cardiac causes. These are actually more common. And get cardiology and an echo if you are suspicious. And when considering PE, don't do any tests unnecessarily, but equally do any tests you think are needed. And even a CT pelvis is about one-tenth the dose that is considered harmful for a fetus. And anoxaparin is a safe drug to give whilst pending investigations. So many, many thanks again to you for listening. Many, many thanks again to Marcus. Please visit stmungos-ed.com where there's lots more additional resources for your enjoyment. And until next time, take care. <laughs>